The reading this morning is from the first book of Kings, chapter 10. It can be found on page 343 of the Church Bibles. When the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice And righteousness. And she gave the king 120 tablets of gold, large quantities of spices, and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as the Queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Hiram's ships brought gold from Ophir, and from there they brought great cargoes of elmic wood and precious stones. The king used the Elmigwood to make supports for the temple of the Lord and for the royal palace and to make harps and lyres for the musicians. So much Elmigwood has never been seen or imported since that day. King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired and asked for besides what he had given her out of his royal bounty. Then she left and return with her retinue to her own country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Graham. Well, good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please would you speak to us now by your word, the Bible, about your word, the Son, for we pray in his precious name. Amen. Uh, Now, I think I've um, confessed this before, um, but I'll say it again. Um, I love the Queen. Uh, I don't know about you, I love the Queen. I think she's so dignified and strong, Um, but she kind of lives in a very different world than I do, and I imagine a very different world to you too. Um, So I want to share a little bit of um, some fun facts about the Queen. Uh, Here they are. So number one, did you know that the Queen's purse isn't just a fashion accessory? It's actually a social cue so that when she swaps her purse from her left hand to her right, 
That means she wants to finish up her conversation, right? So you better stop talking if she does that to you. Um, in public, the Queen's husband, uh, Prince Philip, must always walk two steps behind her uh, out of respect for her title. Um, here's another one. The Queen has a handshake policy of two shakes maximum, um, and the reason for that is that she, she wants to avoid touching commoners for too long, um, but really it's uh, to avoid the impression of giving preferential treatment to anyone in particular. You know, you can just imagine someone saying, hey, how, how come they got three shakes? I only got two. All right, so that's what it's to avoid. Um, and finally, at Buckingham and Kensington Palace, staff are not allowed to reprimand the Queen's dogs. Uh, it doesn't matter how naughty they've been, the Queen has decreed that the corgis are free range, right? Uh, and they can roam wherever they please. Now, with fun facts like that, who doesn't love the Queen? Well, here's the question Do we actually need the Queen? Uh, you know, when um, the Queen dies and Charles takes the throne, will we need? a king. Um, in 1999, um, I'm sure most of us will remember, Australians were asked to decide that very question. It was a referendum uh, on whether to become a republic. And you might remember 45% said yes, but 55% said no. So they said that we uh, do want to keep the Queen. But what if the Queen had real power? Uh, what if, um, you know, she was actually able to exercise sovereign power in Australia, which she doesn't really. Um, I wonder if the results would have been quite different in the referendum. Um, I think there are way too many examples uh, in history of the misuse of absolute power of a monarch. Uh, and so we don't want a, a queen or a king with that kind of power anymore. But what if there was an extremely good king? What if there was a king who only used their power for good to bless his people. Well, it turns out we actually do have a king just like that. Uh, so if you're new today, um, as we've mentioned, we're in the middle of a series called Greater, and it's about how Jesus is the true and greater fulfillment of the Old Testament people and patterns. And so far in the series, we've seen that Jesus is the greater prophet, uh, he's the greater judge, he's the greater high priest, and today we'll see Jesus is the greater king. And so I want us to look at our passage under three headings. Uh, first of all, the promise of the king. Secondly, the failure of the king. And third, the coming of the king. Okay, so first, the promise of the king. Uh, if you close your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them back up again to uh, page 343 of the church Bibles. Page 343. And uh, it's the famous passage where the Queen of Sheba visits King Solomon. Now, remember, she herself is fabulously wealthy. Uh, we see that in verse 2. She comes with a very great caravan full of spices and gold and precious stones. But even she was overwhelmed. Verse 5, that was her impression. Literally, um, it says uh, she was breathless. Now, it's not every day that we have our breath taken away. Um, maybe it might happen for you if you climb up the top of a mountain or, you know, maybe um, some um, innovative fireworks uh, at New Year's Eve on Sydney Harbour. Uh, I'm going to be honest, I've been, I've been around to a few people's houses uh, from, you know, St. Matt's uh, with views of either the harbour or the ocean. And I've just gone, wow, you know, I've taken my breath away. And that's something like what the Queen of Sheba experienced when she went to visit uh, Solomon's court. She was impressed with Solomon's wealth. Um, right after our reading of verse 14, it says, The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly 
was 666 talents. So that's um, 25 tonnes of gold, or in today's terms, around 156 million Australian dollars per year. That doesn't include taxes, it doesn't include revenue from all the merchants. Some people estimate that Solomon would have been worth $2.2 trillion uh, in today's terms, which would make him one of the wealthiest people in history. But not only that, she's not only impressed with Solomon's extreme wealth, she's also impressed with his um, extreme wisdom. Now, many of us might know of Solomon as a great philosopher who wrote thousands of proverbs, uh, but um, 1 Kings 4 tells us he was also a great musician, right? He wrote a thousand or more songs. He was also a great scientist who could speak endlessly about plants and animals, and um, he's exactly the kind of guy you'd want on your trivia team, right? He's nothing he doesn't know. You'd absolutely kill it and win the prize. Um, he was a great builder, uh, so he o- oversaw great projects in Jerusalem, including the temple and his own palace, and uh, he was also a great businessman. Uh, as we saw a moment ago, he literally made tons of money. So it's no wonder the Queen of Sheba was breathless. From a worldly point of view, Solomon is perhaps the greatest person who's ever lived. What I find most interesting about this passage is actually the assumption she makes in verse 8. She sees that Solomon was extremely blessed. And so she naturally assumes that Solomon's people must also be blessed to have him as their king. Have a look with me at verse 8. She says... How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And that's exactly right. That's exactly why God made Solomon king. The king's job was to maintain justice, right? That means punishing the guilty and protecting the innocent. Uh, And his job was to establish righteousness. That means to preserve the good order of society and to protect it uh, from anything that threatened the peace. In other words, God gave Solomon incredible power, almost unlimited power, unlimited authority, wealth and wisdom, um, but it wasn't power given for his sake. Um, It was power given for the sake of the people. It was power given to establish shalom or peace. Uh, I don't know if you know, but um, in the Bible, shalom doesn't just mean the end of war. It actually means the flourishing of all human community. That's the promise of what an ideal king could be like. Um, One of my favorite illustrations of this uh, is from um, the movie The Lion King. Um, Not the 2019 reboot, uh, but the older and better version, the 1994 one. And in the opening scene, we see Mufasa, you know, the ideal king, and he's standing on Pride Rock, right? He's elevated and he's at the center of the kingdom, symbolizing his power. Um, But the animals don't resent his power. Um, In fact, you know, they joyfully come to him and and bow before him and his newborn son Simba. Why? Because Mufasa is the ideal king, right? He establishes peace, right? He provides order. And, you know, he teaches Simba about the king must respect every animal in the circle of life. And he protects his realm, 
right? Um, and that's represented by he fights off the threats from the hyenas at the risk of his life. Um, and so his rule brings prosperity, right? That's symbolized there in that picture by the fertile land and by the harmony that exists between all the living creatures in his kingdom. And that's a little picture of the promise of life under an ideal king. That's what the Queen of Sheba assumed Solomon would be uh, bringing to his kingdom because he was blessed. She thought his people were blessed as well. Um, But it turns out she was wrong, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, But before we get there to point two, I just want to think about um, verse eight and how it might apply to our lives sort of more immediately. Again, the Queen of Sheba sees the blessing of Solomon and she, she says, how happy your people must be. I believe God only ever blesses us that we might be a blessing to others, right? It is more blessed to give than to receive. So God blesses us so that we might be like Him and be generous to those in need. Now, I know some of us don't always feel blessed by God, um, but the truth is all of us have gifts. You have at least one gift, I believe, that is of value to someone else. Maybe it's just the gift of your time. Um, Maybe it's just the gift of um, a listening ear and attention. You know, some people just want to be seen and acknowledged and valued as such. Um, Maybe it's the gift of generosity. Uh, Maybe it's the gift of a specific skill that you have that someone in your life right now needs. There are people in your life. Um, Are there people in your home, people in your work or university, people in your community you know, your people, who you can bless this week and make them happy. That's point number one, the promise of the ideal king. Secondly, point number two, the failure of the king. Now, despite all appearances, it turns out that Solomon wasn't such a great king after all. Um, His people weren't as happy as the Queen of Sheba supposed. Um, In fact, when Solomon died, his people didn't, you know, um, lament and praise him for all the great deeds he did. In fact, uh, they come to the next king and they complain about all that Solomon, uh, you know, had laid on them as a heavy yoke and taxes and that sort of thing. Solomon didn't share his riches with his people. In fact, he sucked them dry. Uh, But worse than that, according to the Bible, Solomon was a failure as a king because he didn't obey the one true king, right? That's Yahweh, the God of the universe. So back in Deuteronomy, God gave clear instructions through his servant Moses about what the king should and shouldn't do. Uh, Deuteronomy 17 says things like the king shouldn't accumulate gold, vast amounts of gold. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses or uh, turn to Egypt uh, for anything. Uh, And the king mustn't uh, acquire many wives or his heart will be led astray. That's what it says. And yet, that's exactly what Solomon did. Um, If you read on in 1 Kings 10 and 1 Kings 11, um, it says Solomon accumulated lots of gold. Uh, It says he accumulated great numbers of horses and chariots. It says he acquired a wife from Egypt, an alliance uh, from the very um, nation that once held Israel in captivity. And in addition to that, Solomon had many wives, 700 to be exact, and uh, they were all from the surrounding nations and 300 concubines, and they eventually led his heart astray to worship other gods. So Solomon couldn't plead ignorance. He knew the law. In fact, God himself had appeared directly to Solomon uh, in two visions. 
And yet, Solomon rebelled against God, and because of that, uh, the tribes, the northern tribes of Israel rebelled against him, or rather they rebelled against his son, Rehoboam. And so the kingdom of Israel was forever torn apart. And you see, that's the principle of kingship in the Bible, right? The king is at the center, but as the king goes, so goes the people, right? If the king at the center is righteous and obeys God, then all the kingdom will be righteous and will be blessed by God. But because Solomon failed to obey, then all the kingdom eventually decayed. And again, in The Lion King, we see that so clearly, that when Mufasa's brother Scar stages a coup and takes over as king, we see he's an unrighteous king. And uh, there is no peace in the land. He doesn't preserve good order. He doesn't respect the circle of life. Uh, And so the kingdom doesn't prosper. Um, Symbolically, the land becomes barren and scarred like its tyrannical king Scar. It's the same with Solomon. In the world's eyes, Solomon was a great king. He was one of the greatest people the world has ever seen. But in God's eyes, he was a failure and his kingdom suffered for it. He wasn't the one. People still had to wait for the greater king who was to come. So before we move there to point three, um, I just want to reflect and uh, pause and reflect on Solomon and what his life teaches us. Now, um, as many of you know, I think I'm about to wrap up in my role as a full-time minister. Uh, Next year, I'm going to be a full-time student. Um, That's a big transition. And I've also just moved home, and uh, in a few months' time, um, I'm going to be turning 40, right? Now, on any measure, I think I'm entitled to a little bit of a midlife crisis, don't you agree? Don't worry, I'm fine. But I have to confess, the last month or so, it's been a little bit stressful as I've... um, you know, the waters have been stirred, so to speak. It sort of made me wonder about a whole bunch of things in my life. Uh, you know, I found, I've caught myself wondering things like, should I have settled down and had a family? Uh, should I have bought a property around five years ago before the boom? <laughs> should I have stayed in my job in corporate law? Now, my dad is sitting here today, and I'm surprised he's not saying, oh, man, to all three of those right now. <laughs> I love you, Dad. <laughs> But you know what? Meditating um, on the Solomon story this week, it's given me a lot of comfort. Um, It's called to mind um, this particular verse uh, or the passage from Jesus where he says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? In other words, Jesus just spoken to my heart this week. He says, don't be anxious. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need and he graciously provides. But not only that, the Solomon story powerfully reminds us that earthly success is meaningless if you're not a success in the eyes of God. Solomon, from all appearances, he was the wealthiest, the most successful, the wisest person in the whole wide world, and yet in the eyes of God, he was a fool. It reminds me of the story about the, uh, the rich man who, you know, wanted to store up um, bigger barns and, you know, tore down his old barns, and that very night, God says his life was demanded of him, and God says, you fool. Or as Jesus puts it, he says, what good is it? for someone 
to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul. James, uh, James Packer famously said that he who dies with the most toys wins, to which many wise guys have said, yeah, but he who dies with the most toys still dies. Of course, it's not always wrong uh, for Christians to be successful, uh, wealthy and wise. In fact, it's a very good thing. Um, they're blessings from God to be received with thanksgiving and as you're able to be shared with those in need. But here's the point. If you have to choose, it is infinitely wiser to obey God rather than seek success at the expense of disobeying Him. It is infinitely wiser to seek success in God's eyes rather than in the eyes of the world because at the end of the day, it is His verdict and His alone that really and ultimately matters. All right, so with that in mind, how do we get right in God's eyes? Well, that brings us to point three, the coming of the King. There's this great film, I'm showing sort of all my preferences for movies today, there's this great film, um, I think anyway, called 300, and um, it's where King Xerxes, the great king of Persia, he wants to conquer Greece, he's sort of set his heart on conquering Greece, and so he sends out emissaries uh, to all the Greek kingdoms, including King Leonidas of Sparta, and the message is this, tremble and fear, right? King Xerxes is coming to conquer and you'll be utterly destroyed unless you submit to the will of Xerxes, right? And the way you demonstrate your submission to his will is that you offer earth and water, all right? And there's that sort of famous scene where in response, King Leonidas, he looks at the well behind the emissary and he says, there's plenty of earth and water down there. Uh, Then he famously shouts, this is Sparta, and then he kicks him down the well, right? It's a very famous, very dramatic scene. Now, that's it there. When King Jesus comes into the world, he also sends out emissaries. Luke chapter 2, an angel appears to a whole bunch of shepherds. And the angel doesn't say, tremble and fear. No, the angel says, don't be afraid. He says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the King promised throughout the whole Old Testament. He is the Lord. And it's a very famous couple of verses as we remember every Christmas. But why is it such good news? It's because Jesus is the King of the world, but he didn't come to conquer or destroy. He came to bring peace. And so we see the blessings of his kingdom all through the Gospels. The power of His kingdom breaks out wherever He goes. He heals the sick. He calms the storm. He feeds the crowds. He drives out demons. He raises the dead. And He forgives sinners their debts. In other words, we see so clearly in Jesus' public ministry that in His kingdom, everything that threatens human flourishing will be destroyed. It is a kingdom of peace and order and prosperity for all. That's what the great and ideal king brings. It's a little bit like this um, in the movie The Lion King, uh, when Simba, the true king of the land, returns. He defeats the evil king Scar and he restores order and then the land becomes fertile. The animals become numerous 
and peace and prosperity return to the kingdom. That's what the true king brings and provides. Now, of course, um, Jesus' kingdom is not quite as simple as that. Um, We say it's now but not yet. Uh, It begins with his first coming, with the blessings in part, uh, but when he returns in glory the second time, he'll bring all the blessings of the kingdom in full. But how does he achieve this? You know, how does he sort of bring us into his kingdom? How does he establish his kingdom? Well, it's a bit like this. At Solomon's coronation in 1 Kings 1, he rode a donkey to receive his throne as king. And likewise, a thousand years later, Jesus rode a donkey to receive his throne as king. But it wasn't a throne like Solomon's that was covered in ivory and hammered with gold. Jesus' throne was a wooden cross that was covered with splinters and hammered with nails. He wasn't cheered by the crowds and crowned in glory at his inauguration as king. He was jeered by the crowds and crowned with thorns. On the cross, there was a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It was meant to be ironic. And yet, when the soldiers lifted him up, little did they know that they were enthroning the King of the world who was establishing right there his kingdom. You see, Jesus is the King who was pleasing and is pleasing to God. Unlike Solomon, right, unlike all of us who want to be little kings or little queens of our own lives, Jesus obeyed God's law to the letter. Only he deserves the glory of the one true king. Only he deserves the glory of the true son of God. And yet on the cross, he didn't get glory. He got our guilt and our shame. He got the death we deserve. Why? So that we could get the life and the glory with God that he deserves. And he offers it to all of us, absolutely free. The fullness of his kingdom comes to us if we just come to him. That's the gospel, right? That's why the angel announced good news of immeasurably great joy that is for all people. Jesus achieved his kingdom through his death and resurrection, and we receive his kingdom simply by coming to him, humility and faith, and with a genuine desire to follow him as king. So if that's why Jesus came, how then do we respond? Well, first of all, proclaim. Jesus' kingdom does expand, right? It's not through sword and conquest. It's through his word and genuine conviction of heart that his kingdom expands. His kingdom comes whenever someone joyfully bows their knee and uh, decides to follow him as king. And um, the last few weeks, you know, friends, I've seen, uh, I've had front row seats Um, the great privilege of seeing, as it were, the kingdom come with power to see people with tears in their eyes joyfully receive Jesus as their king. It's a wonderful joy to be a part of that process at any stage of that journey. So friends, if you believe that Jesus is the greatest king of the world, join with the angels and become his emissary. Share with your friends and family the good news that is of great joy and that is for all people. Uh, Secondly, if Jesus is the great king, then pray to him. 
Um, there's this fantastic scene in the book of Esther uh, where the queen has to come to the king. Um, she needs to plead with King Xerxes on behalf of her people to spare their lives. And um, the problem is the law of her day says that um, if she comes and the king doesn't want to speak with her, then her life is forfeit. And yet she boldly goes into the king's court all the same. And it turns out the king is pleased with her and he he extends his scepter. And he's so pleased, the text says, he offers her whatever she wants, up to half her kingdom. Friends, that is a little picture of the immeasurable grace that God wants to extend to us. He is more willing to give than we are even are willing to ask. We can't even ask or imagine what He is able to give to us. And you know, sometimes we feel we're not worthy to come into His throne. Sometimes we feel our requests are too big uh, for Him to answer. As we saw last week, Jesus is our great high priest who has paid the sacrifices that our sin, a sacrifice rather, that our sins deserve. But you know what? He's also the great high king who decides that the sacrifice is acceptable to God. And if that's the case, Hebrews 4 verse 16 says it so well. It says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. And I love it how John Newton puts it. He says, when you pray, remember this, you are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring, for his grace and power are such None can ever ask too much. Amen. But you know what? Maybe some of us are wondering, what if God doesn't give all that I ask for? Well, here's the last bit of application for today. It's this. Obey. Sometimes in life, it's hard to obey God's will. Uh, Sometimes it's hard to obey His commands and sometimes it's hard to accept the circumstances of our lives that have been meted out by Him. Friends, if that's you, or if that is you down the track, remember this. Jesus said His kingdom is not of this world, right? If God denies you something in the kingdom of this world, it's only ever to increase your joy in the kingdom of heaven, So, of course, it takes faith to follow Jesus as king. Of course, it takes trust. We live by faith and not by sight. But how do we know we can trust him? How do we know we can trust him, especially when things look grim? Well, consider this. Jesus gave up his life to buy you access into his kingdom. Friends, he is not going to go stingy to do whatever it takes to ensure you make it safely home. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? With that in mind, let's pray. Father, we praise you that Jesus is our great king, the greatest king the world has ever seen or ever will see. Father, we praise you that he doesn't come to conquer and destroy. He comes to bring peace and prosperity for all who put their trust in him. Father, help some of us here today to see this as good news of great joy and turn to him perhaps for the very first time and help everyone else 
to proclaim about, to, pro- to pray to, and to obey our great and awesome King Jesus. For your glory and in his name we pray. Amen.